This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Hey everyone, it's Gabriel Spitzer here. We just met Sonia Vallab and Eric Minicol in our last episode, and today we're starting out at their breakfast table. Our kids are now five and two and a half. And so our morning routine largely revolves around trying to channel their like bottomless energy in like remotely the right direction. Eric is actually our morning superhero. He gets up before anybody else. He prepares a beautiful breakfast with a novel vegetable every day. Then, Wait, Eric, you put vegetables in the in the breakfast? That's oh yeah. next day. level. I know, I know. Like like what? Uh, this morning was actually sweet potato greens. But we do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We're serious about breakfast. And then I go in and wake up our daughter, which has to happen in like the gentlest possible way. And then we get the little guy. Usually the little guy just comes storming out of his room and he's got these big thumping toddler footsteps and this sort of like whirlwind convenes on the breakfast table. After breakfast, it's the mad rush to get teeth brushed, shoes found, backpacks zipped. And then we head out in different directions. Now our daughter's in kindergarten, and so I walk her to her school down the street, and uh, Sonia takes the little guy to daycare downtown. And then you guys reconvene at the office? Then we reconvene, and we already have so much to debrief, Um, and then we get down to business. Business, for Eric and Sonia, means running a prion science lab at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. There's plenty to do, fundraising, planning, managing staff— That's on top of the actual lab work and research. We hear a lot from other PIs of research labs who say, oh my gosh, how do you guys do it? I can never run a lab with my spouse. And I'm like, how can you run a lab without your spouse? This isn't a one-person job. This is a tag team job. The job that Sonia and Eric are tackling is a daunting one with the highest possible stakes. They need to invent a drug for an incurable brain disease before that disease takes Sonia's life. Today on the show, what it's like when your research is in a race against the clock, and why these partners in both marriage and science believe they have a shot. You're listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Sonia Vallab has a genetic mutation that makes her highly likely to develop prion disease. The disease claimed Sonia's mother, Kamni, in 2010. And it led Sonia and Eric to a huge pivot from careers in law and urban planning to prion science. They tell the whole story in our previous episode, in case you missed it. Anyway, we wanted to hear more about how they're approaching this personal and scientific challenge. And that's what we're in for now. It's genetic prion disease that we've set out to cure, develop a a treatment or prevention in our lifetimes. So say more about that. What does that mean to uh, have, you know, have a deadline and a deadline that you don't really know what it is? 
yeah, racing against a clock we can't see. Um, we need a new drug. And I think we had this, hopefully this blessing that we had enough advance notice that we have time to be ambitious about developing exactly the drug that's needed to treat this disease with the right mechanism of action. Um, but every day we feel that jeopardy of not knowing, do we actually have the amount of time that we imagine we do? Yeah. So my mom got sick when she was 51. And it was easy for me to sort of fixate on that number and think, maybe we have 20 years to solve this problem. But like now I have two kids of my own and I feel that I am in middle age, which is where she was. And um, it has changed the emotional tenor of our work for me. I think it was really easy to be strategic 10 years ago and to say, we hoping, hoping like heck that we have the luxury of time. Why is prion disease such like a, a, thorny one to tackle in terms of therapies and, and and drug development? What is it about it that makes it such a hard nut to crack? If you compare prion disease to other transmissible diseases, it's very unusual, right? Because it's not like a bacterium or a virus, right? Um, and if you compare it to other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and so on, well, it's it's so much more rapid, right? And so I think it doesn't, it, it, it a little bit falls into a bin by itself where anything you try to group it with, it's the oddball out. But at the end of the day, it's caused by a single gene, a single protein. And I think the whole biology of the disease really gives us one very obvious therapeutic hypothesis, which is lower the amount of normal PRP. And I think it's only in recent years that we've started to have the drug modalities where it's realistic to go after it. So the PRP, which is the prion protein, is made by our own cells, right? Yeah, that's right. Why is... Uh, reducing the amount of that that protein overall, uh, a, a promising way to potentially slow down this disease or even stop it. When we dig down, every case is caused by the normal prion protein, or PRP, misfolding into a prion. And there are decades of experiments showing that prion protein is essential to this process. And if you engineer animals that lack prion protein, there's nothing you can do to cause prion disease in those animals. By contrast, in an animal that did make the normal amount of prion protein, you would expect that sort of prion seed that you're introducing to spread, to template other copies of prion protein, to cause those to misfold, to create this domino effect, and eventually to develop into full-blown prion disease. And to be able to sort of pinpoint the single protein that is the fuel to the fire and then delete it, you know, using some some genetic tricks that in in ways that are possible in laboratory animals and not currently realistic as a, as a therapy in people. But, you know, for the sake of the experiment, delete that prion protein and now that animal is is effectively invincible. Yeah. So what's standing in the way right now of bringing those same techniques to bear on on people? The brain is a tough tissue. It's tough to reach. It's well protected. We have the blood-brain barrier that's trying to keep molecules from going in and out, except if they have a very special pass to do so. And um, I think for antisense oligonucleotides, we are the furthest along. ASOs are these basically modified string of DNA, like a you can think of the sequence as being sort of programmed to go and find a particular RNA. 
And in our case, it would be the RNA that encodes the prion protein. And it goes and finds it and binds to it, and that triggers that RNA to be destroyed. So the challenges end up being around sort of all of the additional details of drug development. You know, we've been working on a prion protein-lowering ASO now for six-plus years, and there will be all sorts of questions that really until a human clinical trial, we won't know the answer to. So there, there are a lot of ways to have a good idea and still have just an incredible amount of work to do to execute a meaningful experiment. Sonia, do you feel like it helps or hinders to have such a an immediate and life or death stake in this research? You know, in the in the very beginning, I remember encountering the idea that maybe we would have a quote unquote conflict of interest. And I, I've come to see it exactly the opposite way. I think we are the people who most clearly lack a conflict of interest, right? We are uh, uniquely difficult to distract. You know, we're not going to follow the money if it goes in a different direction. And um, we, we don't have the luxury to kind of go off on tangents, much that would sometimes be really interesting to, you know, follow our curiosity into different scientific domains. We've got to focus. And we certainly don't have the luxury to continue advancing projects that we know are not going to lead to a drug. We have to be patient enough to work within the system and bring all the right partners to the table. But we have to be no more patient, right, than is than is strictly required to get the job done. I think we're here to be exactly. the people who are just a little bit less patient than anybody else. That must be really hard. It's so hard. Can you talk about how this journey has affected your relationship, changed your relationship, anything surprising you've learned about your spouse? Mm. This is a fun question, Gabriel, because I think we noticed a long time ago that as soon as we got married, people stopped asking us about our relationship, <laughs> right? There's this funny thing where like when you're when you're dating somebody, people ask, how's it going with so-and-so? And then the day after you're married, you never get asked that question. Nobody's <laughs> ever like, hey, how's your marriage? <laughs> Wait, you don't want to hear the answer. <laughs> <laughs> our marriage is great. Thank you for asking, Gabriel. Um, it's, you know, this quest is so difficult and so draining in so many ways, but the saving grace of it is being able to do it with your best friend and the person you love, right? Like striking out on this adventure and, you know, Sonia and I have already been together for so long and yet still every day learning new things about her and seeing her succeed in new ways. It's like so inspiring. I I completely agree with that. I think it's it's, to me, there's just this like, magic to it where we did know each other so well when we got married. Like I knew him, but there were whole facets of his personality like yet to be unveiled by all of this hardship that I could not have guessed at. You know, I'm I'm not a big believer that everything happens for a reason, but I am a believer that we can choose to live in such a way that Nothing is wasted. And I think these years have not been for nothing in the the context of our relationship and our lifelong pledge to get to know each other. Can you now walk me through your evening routine? These days we leave together. We head home. 
this period. You have where, a little time to like recuperate. Yeah, we we right? we sort of have a a little bit of a softer transition in our current routine where maybe one of us is cooking dinner and s- still we can be talking about work as long as it doesn't require both people to be at their computers. So then the kids come come crashing back into our lives sometime around six thirty p.m. and from there it's just a tornado of you know dinner and debriefing the day with them and sometimes. Oh, God forbid, bath time and um, reading before bed. And um, we actually have a routine with our kids. It's fun because, you know, I ask my daughter, what were the five good things that happened to you today? Um, But then sometimes she'll turn it on me and say, well, you know, do you have, you know, different five things you'd like to tell me about, Dad? And the other day, the response that I gave required me to explain what a clinical trial was. And I said, well, you know, sometimes a little experiment involves mice or rats. Well, a really big experiment is when people are involved. Um, and it's, it takes a lot of bravery to sign up and say, I want to be the first person to get a new drug. And she jumped up on her bed and said, I want to be in a clinical trial. <laughs> She's starting to get a sense of, of what it is we do all day, and it really inspires her. The other day, she brought one of her stuffed animals and said that she had to go to work to develop a cure for the stuffed animal. Sonia Vallab, Eric vallab Minicole, thank you guys so much for talking. Thank you. Thanks so much, Gabriel. It was really a pleasure. One little epilogue. Because of the risk of inheriting the prion protein mutation, Sonia and Eric's children were both conceived using IVF, or in vitro fertilization. Each embryo underwent genetic testing, and both children are negative. This episode was produced by Burley McCoy and me, edited by Giselle Grayson, and fact-checked by Abby Levine. The audio engineers were Robert Rodriguez, Natasha Branch, and Patrick Murray. I'm Gabriel Spitzer. Thanks, as always, for listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business. Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. Ship Bob. There's a new way to support this show and public media. Please consider signing up for the NPR Plus podcast bundle. NPR Plus listeners get to unlock sponsor-free shows and bonus episodes. You can find out more at plus.npr.org. And thanks.